here in the 11FS office in London for episode 87 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Thailand approves some cryptocurrencies, Facecoin, and Navora raises $20 million. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm rejoined by Colin G. Platt, who's not sat next to me this week, thank goodness, but you have less beard. Is there something about France and no beards now? Is it a new rule? Was there a petition to get rid of your beard? You can blame my wife. Uh, we we shall. Um, so listeners, you know, email Colin at 11fs.com uh, if you want to bring back the beard. Hashtag bring back the beard. Uh, do this. <laughs> well, fortunately, naturally, that'll happen by itself. <laughs> That's why it's a successful campaign. It's a surefire winner. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> beard the standard right um we're also joined by uh well the one and only anthony lewis who's director of research at r3 and a bit of an author in your free time anthony welcome back how are you doing sir yeah very good to be back on the show thank you so much all right let's just uh crack right on with the news uh first story comes from news.bitcoin.com thailand has got four approved cryptocurrencies so the thailand um, securities and exchange commission has announced a list of four approved cryptos the regulator reported uh, decentralization and market liquidity as factors for approval that this means that they approved bitcoin btc um eth so ethereum and XRP and Stellar XLM. The regulator has clarified, however, that approval does not make these coins legal tender and they cannot be used to pay off debts. So they are sort of registered securities is how I read this, Colin? I Well, I, I don't know too much about Thai law. Um, maybe Anthony does. He's, he's an expert in all these things out there. But um, I, I guess the idea is just that what they're trying to say is they looked at this um, and... From their point of view, they're good enough, uh, good enough for government work. Um, you can use them, um, whereas some of the other ones are, are maybe a bit more iffy. And I believe it was specifically to use it uh, for trading as a base pair. So you, that doesn't necessarily say you can't work with other ones. It's just really specifically these can be used on an exchange as a base pair. Sure. My my, my understanding of this was that uh, so there's there's a bit more to this um, than meets the eye. So originally they approved a few more currencies and. And my understanding is that this is um, currencies that ICOs, people trying to raise funds for projects, can accept as as the funding. If I wanted to raise funds for a project, which we used to call ICOs, then I'm, I can accept bitcoins, Litecoin, and and, and or, or, or uh, bitcoins, Ether, and, and and that list. That list was in fact longer and it included Ethereum Classic, um, Bitcoin Cash, and Litecoin, but. Um, uh, there were some reports subsequently that that those got taken away. So it's it's Ether, not Ethereum Classic. It's um, it's not Litecoin anymore, and it's not Bitcoin Cash. Um, so so supporters of those currencies uh, may be a bit disappointed. That's not to say that those ones are illegal. It's just that I think you can't accept them um, as part of fundraising for 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 your project. That's fair enough. I, I mean, I guess they, they'd be pretty forked off um, if you were um, part of Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum Classic at this point. But they, that's hence the point about um, liquidity. Um, but there's this point about decentralization again. Sufficiently decentralized seems to be this measure that keeps popping up. We saw in the US, the SEC has maybe started to walk back from decentralization as some sort of sophisticated measure of uh, of whether or not something is or is not a security and, and can or cannot be used Um for, for fundraising in any way, shape, or form. Um, do we see that as a challenge, Colin, that's kind of ongoing? Um, and, and what do we think we mean by decentralization? 
I don't think anybody knows. Like this is if you read anything coming out from the lawyers specifically focused on the U.S. and Europe um, who are looking at that, uh, they repeatedly point out that that's those are just opinions from certain people in the U.S. regulator, um, and it's not well defined, which which kind of creates a problem because everybody says, "Oh, we're a utility coin that happens to be sufficiently decentralized," but that's like their own heuristic. Um, it is very, very poorly worded and, and perhaps creates more problems than it, than it really solves. Because, of course, everybody wants to be sufficiently decentralized. And we've talked on multiple occasions about what that means. Um, and from the point of view of decentralization, meaning it, it's hard for any single or small group of entities to control something. Well, what is that something? Is that the price? Um, because we could make the argument that, you know, like, actual stocks and bonds that are 100% securities uh, by that measure are completely decentralized because the entity can't necessarily just control the price. Yeah, they can perform better or worse and give guidance, but they don't control the day-to-day price. So um, maybe Apple's sufficiently decentralized. I think the point is that there's no obvious issuer or something like that. There's no obvious one central entity who continues to be beneficiary of the initial issuance. But even then, I, I take the point, it, it becomes challenging. It, but but it, but I think this is the key point, isn't it? That like you've got all of this wooliness around the definition of decentralization. And uh, uh, Anthony, I'm curious to see how you view this space. You know, uh, was that the the intent of, of this uh, this wording that was put out from from the Thai SEC to the best of your knowledge? Well, I, I can't speak for the for the Thai SEC. Our work we did with um, for Project Inthanon was with the Bank of Thailand, and we didn't we didn't engage uh, directly the the SEC uh, in that project. Um, and that was a central bank digital currency project, and and, and this is this is clearly different. I, I think the words de- uh, sufficiently decentralized. Um, because they've been uttered before uh, in relation to the, the US SEC, they've become you know, uh, almost a bit of a meme. It has become safe to say just because someone else has said it, it's now safe to say. Um, I think what they really mean, if, if you look at you know, what characterizes Bitcoin, Ether, uh, XRP and, and Stellar Lumens uh, versus other cryptocurrencies, uh, especially versus Bitcoin Cash, uh, Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, um, is probably liquidity. As, as, as Colin mentioned, you've got a number of things uh, when you talk about, when you think about decentralized, is it, is it who governs the roadmap, who writes the code, who's, uh, whose software is being, is being run, who gets to write, create the blocks, uh, who gets to validate the blocks, who's using it, who are, the, who are the, the large holders of these tokens? There are too many things. And most importantly, of course, what's in the blocks. Um, but but <laughs> I, I wonder, of course, is this podcast sufficiently decentralized since it's coming to you from London, France, and wherever in the world you are at the moment, Anthony? I'm in Singapore at the moment, so we're definitely sufficiently decentralized, yes. All righty. More so than XRP, at least. uh, We have established that we are a sufficiently decentralized podcast. Um, So let's move on to the next story um, coming from from your part of the world again, Anthony. TechwireAsia.com. Blockchain isn't the only choice for bankers in Asia Pacific, apparently. So the article says, in order to deliver large-scale transformations, a large conglomerate approach is needed. Interesting. Let's get into that more. All regulators need to lead. Uh, This dynamic is required for success as each party can act as a node according to the connected ecosystem. And they cite Swift as a great alternative um, and far superior to blockchain in terms of payments. So um, I guess the core thesis here is there's only so much fun you can have with your own blockchain. Um, But I think the suggestion that you need a conglomerate before you can do anything... 
there, there's an interesting challenge there. Um, if we're defining this as DLT, you know, where are you seeing the value for this at the moment, Anthony? Are you seeing that like it's at its best when there's multiple parties involved? And do you think that's the intent of this article? Yeah, no, so I, don't, I don't really understand the point in this article. Uh, yeah, of course, different technologies are suitable for, for solving different problems. And Swift GPI is, is excellent if all your banks are on, are on this uh, GPI initiative because it allows you to track a payment like you track a FedEx parcel. It tells you, you know, with timestamps when you made the payment and when it went through intermediary banks and when it got to the other end, when it got to the beneficiary, which is, which is great because we've, we haven't had that before for international payments, really. So, uh, and blockchains can be used for, for, for many, many other things. The big use cases we're seeing in Asia um, are around trade finance. So the financing of international trade where, where the buyer and seller are in different countries paying in different currencies and where there's a time gap between someone ordering the goods, creating the goods, shipping the goods and, and receiving the goods. And the question is, you know, when do you pay um, if, you, if you're the buyer? When do you pay in what, in, uh, and in what currency? And this is especially important for manufacturers who may need uh, money up front to to pay their suppliers for their for their uh, raw materials, for example. And we've seen we've seen a lot of banks get into these trade finance proof of concepts and trials and pilots and that sort of thing. But how real of the, real is this? Of course, we've seen both Singapore and Hong Kong uh, kind of regulators and governments really look to start to endorse this as as you know, hugely regionally significant ports and, and trading arenas. Like, is is this all still hype though? Is this just one of those things that means we're still top of the hype cycle if we're talking about these pilots, or is there something actually there behind the scenes that has real value? you to the banks and to the other market participants no there's absolutely um there's absolutely uh, stuff behind this reveal value what's what's ironic is um when there's not much there you get a lot of press releases we saw that uh, over the past couple of years with all the proof of concept press releases but as things get closer towards commercialization and things become more real and more therefore more commercially sensitive and valuable then people start not telling their competition what they're up to so, so you go through a kind of dark period um, where people are heads down working, and then they come out with the products. Um, and blockchains are um, uh, what what I'm seeing the the real value is coming from is is coordinating multi party workflows where perhaps there 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 can't politically be a centralized third party uh, that 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 manages all the data that coordinates all the data. I mean, you mentioned this yourself that Singapore and Hong Kong they want to create some sort of um, multi, uh, bilateral trade corridor with with a trade platform, a website. Great, that's a great idea. Until you ask the question, who's going to host that data? Because if it's hosted in Hong Kong, the Singaporeans are going to feel that they're, they're they're playing second fiddle, and vice versa. If it's hosted and controlled in Singapore, um, the folks in Hong Kong are going to like that. So you have this interesting tension. They both want to do this, but they're both going to argue about you know who gets to own and control it, and maybe a blockchain makes sense in this case. But but if if somebody's running that blockchain, who's the administrator and, and who controls them? You've always got a who guards the guards problem, right? It's it's turtles all the way down. So how do you get around some of these governance challenges with just a technology alone? Is, is There's got to be more to it. Like if I'm in a bank and I really want this amazing trade platform, surely just throwing tech at it isn't the answer. There's, is there some value to this article? No, remember, remember, we're, we're talking about coordinating workflow. You can have gov- you can have a, a governing committee made of party people from from both countries. What's difficult is is where you host data, or in which jurisdiction is data hosted, and if you can get around that problem. Uh, so historically, we we we've either been emailing PDF files um, from one country to another, and that that's like as as high tech as you get, or you've had a third party um, that has servers on. Uh, in particular, on, on a particular soil in a particular territory. Um, now, with blockchain, you can coordinate 
um, complex multi-party workflow without needing to have that central server that hosts all of that data, some of which may have personally identifiable information. But what does that mean for me if I'm a bank, though? Like if I've been used to being sending around PDFs or if I'm a corporate that's used to getting these PDFs, surely I can't wake up one day and have this all singing, all dancing system. There's still going to be PDFs flooding out there in the wild. Like the, the blockchain isn't the only solution. I must need some some way in and some way out of that to either read the PDFs. Are you seeing anything along those lines from the fintech arena or is it sort of like creating this new world and the old world sits alongside it sort of thing because i always i always wonder like what's that tipping point for adoption if you've created this beautiful new world yes yeah, so it's, it's a good question right and 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 pdfs are, are terrible um we can talk about uh shares and and, and private markets uh, later or another time they exist as pdf files sitting on your desktop as soon as you move from pdf files which are photos, they're kind of scans of, of, of real documents. As soon as you move them into uh, structured data, so, so words and numbers in boxes, then things, then you can, um, you can automate things a, a lot better and a lot more efficiently. So there are a number of steps to this, and blockchain is just part of the solution, turning pictures, photos into structured data and allowing structured data to be sent, to be calculated on. That's part of the journey. I think that's a really crucial point. I was going to say that that's kind of my takeaway here is like, you know, there's complexities and, and possibly by distributing this data amongst different uh, locations or, or entities, um, you solve part of that kind of political issue, which is, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, if we kind of abstract all the cool technology, we're discussing a, a political issue of who holds what, who controls what and how do they control it. Um, but once you kind of figure that out, like break everything down into its individual components and yeah, PDFs are shit for a lot of things, but they're actually quite useful for some things. And um, if we just need to save a bunch of data and not reference it really, but just have a track of everything, throw it someplace and hold on to that thing forever. Um, in the same way that we have old records that you just never access anymore. Maybe throw it on a CD. We still use those things, by the way. <laughs> like it, it's, it's just bringing different technologies to solve their individual uh, areas where they happen to have an advantage. And I think there's something interesting about that governance challenge, right? So DLT seems to work best when there's a real governance headache um, where end-to-end workflow and automation is your goal, um, but you can't get there because. And, and, and I love this like digitized versus digital thing that keeps coming up when we're dealing with PDFs, whether it's trade finance or whether it's in um, you know, the, allocate, the creation of uh, securities and, and the, the secondary trading of those. Like it, once you've created that PDF, you essentially have a digitized version of the contract, but that's no different to having a newspaper on an iPad, right? Like if I've got a newspaper on an iPad, I now have a newspaper that runs out of battery. Whereas truly digital news is something like, you know, BuzzFeed and YouTube and something that's interactive and, and requires that data. Like it's a step change and the business model's different. And I think that's what people often miss with blockchain and DLT is really it's, it's a part of that evolution is once I move into this digital world, I can start to create those end-to-end workflows, those end-to-end journeys that aren't just doing the bank bit of the process. There's the bank and the shipping company and the supplier and the buyer and potentially the forwarder There's all, and there's the, the local port. There's all of these people that need to be coordinated 
And the classic metaphor is the Uber one, right? Like before Uber, I had to find the piece of paper with the number on it, and then I had to call the number, and then I called a dispatcher who called the taxi, who then got in touch with me and gave me an estimate of when they'd show up. I then would wait for them, maybe call back if they hadn't shown up on time, and if I'm lucky, I already had cash on me. If not, I have to stop off to get some cash. Like if you think about all of those bits of the journey that were not connected before, but then technology enabled us to connect all of those bits of the journey, like then you add in this governance piece, it starts to make hopefully a little bit more sense. But but Colin, I know you've always kind of had some challenges with the, the trade finance use case. Like, um, do you see these things as being something that will will ever really take off, or do you think that you, you, for you is the jury still out on the value here? I, I think trade finance, the, the money side of it, makes more sense than supply chain management um, because you know trade finance is just a series of locking and unlocking money. Um, and there's ways you could design that. Would you want to do it with a cryptocurrency? I, I don't think so. Like you could you could make payments in in Bitcoin or or Ether or whatever else it is or Stellar Lumens if you want. Um, but you know actually locking and unlocking based off physical movements of assets. Uh, is very easy to to screw around with. Good stuff, Anthony. Any any points on this before we leave it? No, you've got it covered. Beautiful. I'll let's end of that. All right. Next story comes from the New York Times dot com, nytimes.com. Um, Facebook and Telegram are hoping to succeed where Bitcoin failed is the headline. I I wouldn't argue that Bitcoin failed, but it depends what you assume its intended goal was. I'd say what we failed on this is calling it Facecoin when we could have been calling it Facebox. Oh, yeah. Like that, that was a failure on but our part. But that makes me Pet. think of like coffee from with a Facebook logo on it at that point. Where are you going to spend your Facebox? Yeah, on my <laughs> face. Um, all right. Uh, Facebook, Telegram, and Signal are all individually planning to roll out new uh, cryptocurrencies, is the term used here, uh, over the next year that are meant to allow users to send money uh, to contacts in their messaging systems. Facebook uh, specifically is working on a coin that users of WhatsApp, um, which, of course, Facebook owns, could send to friends and family instantly, uh, said, quote, five people briefed on the effort who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of confidentiality agreements. Love that sentence. Uh, apparently, the Facebook project, of course, is far enough along that the social networking giant has held conversations with exchanges about selling Facebook coin to consumers, um, said for people. But apparently, they have more than 50 engineers working on the project. Of course, we've covered this at a high level a few times before when Facebook has uh, you know, announced that David Marcus was going to go do uh, go look after this project. And of course, David Marcus is the former CEO of PayPal. He used to run Messenger. Um, so that's a, that's a heavyweight executive, as well as a bunch Bunch of people popping up on LinkedIn with you know cryptocurrency researcher or engineer at Facebook. So this isn't like the biggest surprise ever. This New York Times piece, I think the new bits here appear to be very much around that they're planning to sell it to exchanges. And what's this thing actually going to be? Is it going to be some kind of stable coin? Um, do you guys have any views on on what it is um, over and above that? Look, there's so many questions that I've tried to dig into this. So many questions. So. Is it a cryptocurrency? Yes or no? Well, how do you define cryptocurrency? If you define it as you, know, you can use your private keys to sign a transaction and no one else can move money without you, without signing something with a private key, um, then fine. I, I, yeah, it, does, it doesn't really matter if it's crypto or not. Um, it's probably a negative if it's crypto because it means that if you lose your keys, you lose your cash. Um, a big question for me is you, can you take it out of the system? So can I take it out of Facebook, um, uh, Facebook Messenger and, and, and WhatsApp, out of their system. Can I hold it on my smartphone, put it somewhere else, 
say an exchange or something um and and uh, exchange it for something else that's that's a huge question otherwise it's just e-money and we've seen uh, e-money electronic money before like wechat in in asia is is huge it's a chat program uh, and it's had a, a payment system embedded within it uh, for many years now it's highly highly popular uh, people send each other money on wechat pay people pay gross buy groceries with wechat pay people um you can spend weeks in china without holding physical cash we just scan qr codes with with your smartphone to make payments um so i don't know how much it differs from uh, e-money schemes that already exist today i think in practical application it doesn't i think the really interesting question is e-money is of course a regulated uh, activity uh, there is uh, i guess a question if somebody is holding in a non-custodial wallet something that is the equivalent of cash can you use cash in cash out regs uh, as a way to sort of say well actually this consumer is holding this um, all we've done is given them a technology that allows them to uh, have cash that they were in another form and send that electronically sort of the same argument made by the non-custodial wallets whereby you know they collaborate with law enforcement to, to certain degrees in terms of the activity that they can see um, but actually you know it's, it's end-to-end encrypted in the same way that a whatsapp message is uh, in theory facebook shouldn't be able to see into those end-to-end encrypted messages so they shouldn't be able to see in theory uh to those end-to-end encrypted transactions um at least you know the, the, so the theory goes i can see colin smirking yeah i, I mean First, first, I, I will say like the headline is stupid, but let, let's just remind people like editors write headlines, not the authors. Like I, I respect both of the authors, and I know that they would not have put uh, that that title in there because, yeah, as you said, it's it's not necessarily competing with Bitcoin or or designing it to fail or whatever it is. Um, but uh, my favorite conspiracy that I read on Twitter this morning or last night, I can't remember, uh, was that you know some of the the. One of the teams they brought in worked on Zcash or, or part of uh, a Zcash-like solution, um, and their conspiracy went along the lines of um, Facebook may create something that's got like Zcash or ZK Snarks, which makes all of your transactions potentially anonymous. Um, but then just Facebook holds a back key and they just do surveillance on everything going on, um, and that, that's not exactly outside of their character, is it? Well, I mean, I think this is the interesting thing, doing this against the backdrop of the reputation that they've um, kind of built for themselves in the last six to 12 months. I've been speaking a lot to uh, recruiters lately, and there's a lot of people in our hiring pipeline that are obviously being chased by big tech companies that that you know that, uh, that would pay them potentially more than you would coming to work for a 100-person startup based in London. Um, but people don't want to work for that company anymore. I think the values and the PR around it has really started to bite for them. So there's, there's the interesting optics question about, you know, will people trust this? But also consider the market, right? If they've got nearly two, 2 billion users allegedly, but even if it's anywhere near that, a whole bunch of those are in emerging markets. And consider who they're competing with. I think, Anthony, you mentioned earlier, you know, WeChat. There's a whole bunch of regional wallets kind of in not just Asia-Pacific, but uh, the hotter regions you know, where Facebook is really popular outside of China, um, Southeast Asia specifically. You see a, a lot of this activity on Facebook uh, where people have moved really out of Facebook into WhatsApp and beyond into super apps where those players are now trying to move into that um, peer-to-peer payment capability, uh, Facebook probably doesn't want to go market by market being regulated. But I would speculate that are they looking at those markets first as being kind of a bottom-up approach rather than top-down? Yeah, that, 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 that's a great point, Simon. It, you, you mentioned two points which are actually in my head are linked. Firstly, you know, this 
backlash against Facebook? Is that just in our little tech bubble where we have highly sophisticated users who have points of view over privacy and, and, and things like that? Like if I ask my mum uh, or dad, um, you know, what they think about Facebook, is, is, uh, are they going to be as vitriolic as, as perhaps some of the engineers who absolutely refuse to work for, for that kind of company? Um, and then you think about, well, who are the users of, 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 these, of this currency, of this Facebook coin? Um, are they targeting you know, our little bubble of people or are they targeting countries where their, payment, their current payment systems just suck? And you know, anything that's a little bit digital, a little bit automated um, is, is much, much better than what they have today. Um, so how much does Facebook care about the, about the kind of small elite versus the, the long tail of people who don't actually care that much about privacy um, and whose current infrastructure where they live um, just is, is, is probably terrible compared to what we're used to in, in Singapore and London? Should uh, banks be concerned well. about this at all? We've seen um, JCoin as uh, as something I think from one of the Japanese banks. Uh, we've seen obviously JPM Coin, which has got a completely different audience. But um, you know, there's there's been sort of uh, across the African region for quite some time a lot of peer to peer money plays uh, that that the banks uh, in those regions have now started to collaborate with. Uh, if I'm Facebook, should I worry about the? Sorry, if I'm if I'm a bank, should I worry about these developments? Should I be looking to embrace these developments and learn from them? It's just another layer getting in between the bank and the customer, isn't it? If the bank, if the customer's living on on something like Facebook, making payments in Facebook, giving all the data about all the payments they're making to Facebook, and all all the banks will see then is is when the customers top up their wallets and withdraw out of their wallets, but nothing in between. So the banks, not the banks, make great use of data anyway, but they just lose another layer of data. I I think my my bigger takeaway would be for like fintechs more broadly speaking, like. Facebook, I, Facebook coin, I don't think is going to necessarily kill banks. Yeah, like as Anthony said, like it could take away some of this payment stuff, but that's that's kind of a headache for banks. Like, if you create a little economy inside of Facebook, where at the end of the day, the dollars or euros or whatever else it is is still sitting inside of banks, they're still lending that stuff out, and great. Um, unless it really fully gets into some of these things where banks are making money, um, I, I think the people that are really going to get hurt are. The things that are like Venmo or the the people that are trying to build analytics on top of payment systems, uh, things like Monzo, I think are going to hurt more from Facebook than a JP Morgan. See, I don't think it's the Western tech companies that will struggle. I think it is the emerging market ones first. And then I think what you end up with is, is a sort of a different type of shadow banking system. So we've got obviously the the known shadow banking system in the uh, kind of the Western world of, of kind of the, the buy side um, kind of taking on more traditional banking activities. And then you've got the uh, the new shadow banking system, as it were, uh, which is for the bottom end of the market, you know, the bottom two, three billion um, of incomes in the world who are using these chat-led apps, um, some of which uh, you know don't talk to the traditional financial system via, unless they come via a few steps of intermediaries. So interesting questions for sure. Listen, um, ladies and gentlemen, this episode is brought to you by R3 Blockchain. It's not just for financial services. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. You can discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's quarter platform. Uh, head over to r3.com to learn more. Or uh, you might just enjoy the work of one Anthony Lewis himself, who is right here with us. Next story comes from Coindesk.com. Uh, London Stock Exchange has led a $20 million fundraise for a blockchain startup, Navora. Uh, the big names, of course, in the latest round include Santander's InnoVentures, uh, law firms Linklaters and Oric, uh, and Middle Game Ventures, uh, as well as Digital Currency Group. 
Um, and uh, interesting, interesting company here. Uh, Navora is also beefing up their board. Uh, they're adding the CEO of the London Stock Exchange uh, and also a chap called Spencer Lake, who's joining as an advisor. But producer Patrick didn't tell me who Spencer Lake was, so I don't know why that's important. Um, this represents a deepening relationship with the London Stock Exchange Group. Um, and I think Navora have been around for a couple of years. Um, they're famous for having done an ETH-denominated bond uh, in uh, in uh, sort of and having issued that with the help of uh, a number of key parties. And they've done uh, a few interesting proof of concepts. Uh, do you think this one's uh, significant, Colin? What should we learn from it? It's an interesting amount and it's an interesting uh, association between a startup and one very big uh, exchange and, of course, clearinghouse behind the scenes. Yeah, no, I mean, congratulations to the guys over there. Um, very good team. Um, so I, it's it's always good to be able to, to raise money, especially in a market like this, especially in the UK. Um, so uh, Dr. Sarah, guy I think we both know for, for a while. Um, and I think we have somebody next week. Uh, I think Vic is coming coming on the show next week. Um, so we'll hear a lot more about them then. But essentially, some of the, the work they've been doing has been um, how do you create a digital securities uh, pipeline to bring everything in um, onto ultimately on top of a blockchain uh, through the issuance process. So uh, imagine I'm a big company. I want to raise some money through a debt market or an equity market. Um, I could go and actually issue shares or bonds directly through their platform that would land on the London Stock Exchange, for instance. So it's an interesting thing. Um, would love to, to hear more from them next week about how they're actually doing it um, and what they built so far. Um, but congratulations again to, to raising 20 million bucks. Yeah, this is really interesting, isn't it? Because we're, we're starting to see ideas that came from the the, the kind of crypto side, the, the, the libertarians and disruptors, um, where it was crypto, then ICOs, and now it's STOs, the security token offerings. We're kind, of, we're kind of seeing those ideas mixed with um, uh, or being adopted by traditional companies or at least invested by traditional companies. Um, what I'm seeing is, um, so they're not publicly listed shares and bonds um, maybe we'll see activity happening there first before the publicly listed um, shares and bonds. Um, just because with the publicly listed markets, the, the technology is actually quite good. Um, you know, a, a share of uh, Apple or something, uh, you can trade it in lots of places. There are lots of custodians that you can store it with. Um, things work fairly well. I mean, there's a lot, there's, there's efficiencies that can be squeezed out, but things work fairly well. But in the private markets, shares exist as. Excel spreadsheets held by transfer agents on their computers, and and for the investors, there are PDF files that have been kind of signed and and uh, by by two parties, and you store it on your hard drive and in your Dropbox. It's just not very automated. So I think there's a lot of efficiencies that can happen in the private in the private markets, and of course, companies are staying private for much longer, as we see with companies like uh, Uber. So I think that's where a lot of activity will will happen. And and I'd be really interested to see like. It- is the reason the companies are staying private going to be changed by uh, the, the notion of making it potentially cheaper or, or quicker to come to a public market? Do you, do you think that'll change the dynamic or is there something else there? Well, if, if the technology is coming along to make private markets better, then that's actually more incentive, more incentive to stay private. If, if your yeah. private market tokens are, um, uh, are, are more liquid, uh, more useful to your uh, investors, 
Um, and, and there's still a huge hurdle of getting to public markets and public markets doesn't actually help that much and increase, uh, massively increases your regulatory burden, the things that you have to disclose, the quarterly reports and things like that, then, then, then actually it, it increases the incentive to stay, uh, to stay private. Yeah, and, and I was having a, a conversation with somebody who manages a, a small public company yesterday. Um, and, and from a valuation point of view, it's a hell of a lot sexier to be private. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly if those dynamics continue to play out as, as you suggest. Like, um, maybe we just expand the size of the private market, but that, that might create other issues. Interesting challenges for sure, gents. Alrighty, uh, last story this week comes from the blockcrypto.com. Uh, French President Macron uh, advocates the use of blockchain in European agriculture. So, um, coming live from near a field as always. Um, it seems like you've been having words with uh, with the local government there, or at least uh, the, the uh, central government. How, how have you done this, Colin G. Platt, since, since wow, um, you've, we've been talking about you near a field, we've been talking about you in France, and then this happens? I, I don't think that's a coincidence, surely. Obviously, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, is a listener of Blockchain Insider. I mean, there's no other explanation, right? <laughs> I mean, that's logic, right? That's just logic. <laughs> um, so this actually came out, um, I think, on the 23rd of February. So it's old news. But, of course, Petrit only picked it up when it wasn't in French but in English. Um, so good work, Petrit. <laughs> um, so it was in part of a larger speech at the annual Salon d'Agriculture. And the only thing you need to know about France is everything starts and ends with food and politics here. Um, so obviously the Salon d'Agriculture is the biggest political event you could possibly have um, as the president of France. And you go and you make a speech every single year. Um, he was talking about innovation uh, in agriculture. And one of the things he brought up was this um, uh, Polish uh, food scandal about uh, meat not being traced in properly. Uh, and of course, we had horse meat scandals years ago. And he, he brought up the idea of potentially using a blockchain for provenance and, and traceability. Um, I don't think uh, he necessarily knows the technical details, so definitely keep listening. And, and if you work for the French government, come hit us up and we'll, we'll tell you all about blockchains. Hey, Colin, did, did you know his favorite blockchain? What blockchain is he, is he, is he advocating for? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and guess that he's advocating for uh, the, the best blockchain, which is uh, Pitch Token. <laughs> Oh, clearly. Uh, pitch Token Classic, Fields, France, this had everything. All right, uh, let's just quickly run into uh, stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, story comes from smallcaps.com. The ASX are selling a stake in iRes as a move from chess to distributed ledger technology continues to advance. Uh, good news there. Uh, Coindesk.com, the right way to do blockchain consortiums. And uh, Blocknomi.com, uh, the delete Coinbase movement. Firms, analytics, partners, sold data, reveals crypto exec. If you've not followed the hashtag delete Coinbase movement, uh, then it's definitely something worth. Uh, well, also, where have you been? Uh, because it's been all I can see on social lately. Um, and it seems to be the big drama. Uh, interesting one for me about this one, uh, guys, I don't know if you agree, is that delete Facebook preceded uh, a lot of bad PR for Facebook. I wonder if we'll see similar things here. And I, I saw just this morning um, before we started recording that Coinbase has actually let the the founders of Hacking Team, which was the particular group um, that was in question, that it was part of this uh, acquisition, um, they, they let them go. So always good when you've got hackers that uh, 
have been involved in state-sponsored attacks on journalists and whatnot, uh, bring them into your company and then fire them. <laughs> Indeed. It seems like they've taken uh, the requisite action quickly, though. So, uh, right, let's move on to um, Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. All right, this week's Twitter of the Week comes from uh, Chris Berniski, C. Berniski on Twitter. Uh, and it starts out with, Crypto is not seeing mainstream user traction, but it is seeing mainstream developer traction. Uh, and the developers are precursors to the users. Gentlemen, do we agree? I, I give this a poop emoji. <laughs> uh, that's a no. What about you, Anthony? Yeah, well, I don't know. It really depends. So so partly, some people think that, that crypto is not getting traction because it's so hard to use. And, and, and that has that argument has legs. It is, it is still very difficult to use. It's hard for the person on the street to, to, to create wallets to receive crypto and send crypto. And they don't really know what happens when the number goes up or the number goes down. Or it's just, it's just difficult to use. But, but even if you had the best user interfaces in the world, which made it super easy, you're still dealing with value money something value units of value that goes up and down and you know it's not the currency in which you're paid it's not the currency which you need to pay your rent and buy your food so perhaps there's something a little bit more structural um, about crypto that means it's not getting adoption rather than just the the user interface story I think there's something interesting there about you know, how are we defining crypto? Are we defining crypto assets as a means of payment or crypto networks as a way of securing and transferring data that are public, distributed, and permissionless? Because um, you know that, that second one could be something that uh, is a narrative that uh, you know, Ethereum's Vitalik Buterin has talked a lot about, which is this sort of crypto-graded narrative where you need um, that kind of primit- software primitive that A16Z talks about as well, which is this idea that um, we have a higher level of security um, and confidence in that data having uh, consistency and and having uh, provenance and and so on. Like that is a valuable thing that the developers are now being attracted to in a Cambridge Analytica world, in a world in which more centralized databases are being hacked. There is an argument there that maybe there's something interesting, but um, I I think that's what Chris Baniski is trying to point out. But we are in this interesting search for narrative moment in which, you know, some people, the, the true believers in Bitcoin are moving towards the sound money narrative. Uh, the tech heads are moving more towards this crypto graded narrative. Uh, it, it's an interesting time for sure. And, and if there's one thing, if there's one constant in crypto is that is the narrative is always changing. I, I loved Andreas, uh, Andreas Bricken's um, new meme that I'm going to use all the time, which is like a, a group of people moving a, a football <laughs> goalpost, like literally picking this thing up and moving it. Uh, I mean, I, I was at this Ethereum conference in Paris yesterday, and it was funny because the meme for me, my big takeaway is like, what users? Like, so everybody, every time somebody would say, oh, what about users? And they're like, well, what users? Like, nobody fucking uses these things. I, like, we're hardly using them. Um, no coining is, is definitely using. Um, like, <laughs> talking about crypto. Tweeting, using, um, but no, more seriously, it's like we're supposed to be democratizing money. Like democratizing, I guess, means getting them out of just like the the wealthy early buyers' hands. Sometimes, um, maybe not all of it, but like, what the fuck are we doing here? But see, that's the thing that if we're supposed to be democratizing money, like that 
that sentence is the key. Like, if that's not the thing that we're trying to do, we're trying to do something else. Is there a different narrative, and is that what's attracting the developers? And like, I think there are there is definitely some inflated statistics around developers that float around from certain places. But that said, um, there's there's clearly some some interest uh, in from from the development community and um, in zero knowledge proofs, in the idea of upgraded cryptography, and of course, you do see this time lag between developers getting interested in something and then decades or so later you you see like this thing maybe comes to the fruition so i can see the point they're trying to make but listen we, we could debate this one to death and and uh, i gotta get us to our interview which is uh uh well the next interview is colin you caught up with steve gattuso uh, and jacob blish from the alpine team who are behind the tcl policy project so i'm here today with steven gattuso and Jacob Blish of Alpine. Thank you guys very much for coming on. Hey, thank you for having us. So uh, found out about you guys uh, a couple of weeks back when we were having a chat around a really cool game uh, called TCR Party or Token Curated Register- Registry Party. Um, and we started having a chat. Uh, I thought it was a cool initiative. But beyond that, um, Alpine, I've been following a bit about what you guys are doing, and I think it's really cool. Um, so thank you very much for, for agreeing to share a little bit about what you're doing, about what it is. Um, but if we can kind of start from the top and you guys just uh, quickly tell our, our listeners who you are. Yeah, so our team is called Alpine, and we're an entity within consensus. And our tagline is we're building blueprints for new economies. Really what that means is that we want to build the core components for new digital economies at the intersection of economics, engineering, and business strategy. And the the layman's terms of what we're trying to do is we want to work with existing businesses that have users and potentially network effects and help them identify where they might be able to open up and create new marketplaces or new insided systems that may or may not necessarily have blockchain. For example, Uber, up until very recently didn't exist, but even though it's centrally controlled, it allowed a lot of people to generate new economic value by being able to drive whenever they want. Ideally, we could then take that further and, of course, not have a central rent-seeking entity. So that's kind of our TLDR, is helping design these new marketplaces and ecosystems for companies. I think that's really cool. And and I love the the focus of uh, working on the problem and then deriving the solution. Um, so... Real quickly, can you tell us, um, I, I brought up the idea of TCR and TCR party. Can you tell us what is a token curated registry? Yeah, a token curated registry is quite simply a community built list. Uh, humans have a tendency to like putting things into lists, top 100 universities, my playlist for this coming summer. And instead of me doing that on my own, I can get a group of individuals to economically incentivize them to come up with said list, whichever topic or category that we choose. And by coming up with that, um, obviously kind of key in the name there is is token. Um, so in order to do that, I need to throw something that looks like a Bitcoin or Ether into this to make it work? Correct. So the, the token, there's three people, three sides that interact with the token curated registry. There's the members that are actually on the list. There's those that are curating the list. And there's consumers that use said list. So using universities as as an example, if I'm a token holder, I'm going to vote on what I think are the top 100 universities in the United States. And for universities, that could potentially be very valuable because that will help incoming freshmen decide on where they want to apply for school, which drives revenues and grants and all the other things that universities want. For me as a token holder, I want to curate the most meaningful list in theory because 
if other people are paying to access or leverage that data on the list, then the value of my token should go up and to the right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so make a list that's the most valuable to everybody else so they pay me more to make the list. Exactly. <laughs> In the same way that, you know, um, if I'm a well-known magazine creating the, the top 10 universities in America is valuable because people will read my magazine. Exactly. That makes a ton of sense. And, and I just happen to have a token to, to operate all that. So can you tell me a bit about uh, how TCR Party uses this? What exactly is the goal and how have you built it? Yeah, so I mean, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, so TCR Party is, what we're trying to do is create a, a list of the top 100 or actually 99 uh, voices in crypto Twitter. And so behind the scenes, we are using um, the exact TCR that we've been talking about here. Um, but the novelty that we added on top of it was creating this Twitter UI. Um, our whole idea being that TCRs are naturally complicated. Um, there's, there's a lot of moving parts to them. And we wanted to try to mask as much of that as possible in order to enable anybody to join in and, and be a part of, of curating this list. So, so the novelty that we, we threw on top of this was a Twitter UI that, um, so it, it takes everyone that is in the list, all of the handles that are in the list, and retweets them. So there's one bot that if you follow, then you can you can get the top minds in crypto Twitter. Um, and then we have a second bot that is our, we call it our VIP bot. And that is where the magic of, of curating the list, the behind the scenes actually happens. Um, that's where the, people can DM the bot in order to nominate a certain, uh, certain user to the list. They can challenge an existing user on the list, or they can vote on a challenge to either kick someone off the list or keep them on. And of course, you can manage, you, you have kind of a, a wallet similar to how you'd have a wallet with any sort of cryptocurrency um, that manage your TCR party points is what we call our token. Um, and that is sort of the, that's the currency that we use to, uh, to stake for if you're trying to, to nominate someone onto the list, or you can add weight behind your votes. So the more tokens that you have, the more, the more weight that your vote has and the more influence you have over the curation of the list. Uh, so, so this is kind of how we put all these different parts together to form TCR Party. Okay. So uh, the idea makes sense. Um, you've got different people, different number of tokens that can vote on it. It becomes a very democratic system, right? Yeah. I mean... In every- theory, yeah. <laughs> in, in theory. In theory. <laughs> that, that's not what you've seen. Yeah, correct. Um, it, it ends up changing. I mean, so the issue is if it were democratic, I suppose it would be... Uh, one person gets one vote and everyone has the same sort of of ability to curate. But in this case, because it's it's a token curated registry, um, you kind of, what we've noticed, um, Colin being actually one of the people that have, have or that has exploited this, um, but the people that have a lot of tokens obviously have a lot of influence over the direction of the list. Um, they can vote, they can be the deciding vote on, a, on whether or not someone gets to stay on the list. Because if you have... 50% of the token or of the tokens that are available on the network, then that's a lot of, of weight that you can put behind your vote. Um, so it so it's, ends up being a bit different than just democratic. Fair enough. And, and you guys put out a really, really cool post that I think you got into a bit of that. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes for people that are interested. Um, but I think one thing worth pointing out is we talk about economic incentivization, but this is all on a test net and the tokens are all worth zero, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
and I think that's actually a really interesting point. You guys have created something of value um, that I can go out and use and, and play with and create uh, a list that I've actually met a lot of people on, um, including you guys, um, based off of this test net. Um, so we don't actually need to use the regular Ethereum blockchain. These test nets are actually kind of interesting for some use cases as well. Yeah, and, and the original idea of using a testnet versus mainnet Ethereum was that we wanted to make sure the it was all a part of keeping the barrier of entry as low as possible. Um, if you had to actually go out and buy TCR party points, I just don't know how many people would really do that for something that, especially when we were first starting out the network. Um, and and so it, it definitely made things a lot more of an experiment for us. So it gave us a lot of room to play around with things because there wasn't actual money at stake. Instead, it was just kind of these these internet points. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, o- over time, as the list kind of became more, as p- more and more users were added to it and, and we got more traction with it, there did actually become a good amount of value or we did add a good amount of value to what one TCR party point means. Um, so that's been interesting to watch. And one of the things about staying on testnet is we're subsidizing the the transaction costs. Right now, if this was on mainnet, and this is something we're thinking about whether we deploy it as a sidechain anchor to Ethereum, if we were to ever go mainnet, um, is how do we go around that? Because is the voting, is voting going to be worth more than the cost of the gas used for that vote and every other transaction? And especially since, as we've seen, there's a fair amount of activity going on in terms of voting and trolling, so that becomes somewhat expensive depending on who you are and the value of said token. Um, the other thing is we we firmly believe like hiding it in Twitter means there's risk of centralization. We control the contract that's centralized. The other thing is just we firmly believe when you're launching a new network, you never go full blockchain. You've got to dip your toe in the water, work out systems. And we we develop a lot of this around video games. When you launch a video game or when publishers launch video games, they don't get it right. Humans find some meta gameplay that's going to be overpowered and has to be rebalanced. And we firmly believe the same thing around networks. You've got to give them a chance to grow up before you shove them off the cliff and be <laughs> like, hope you can fly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's that's a really, really good point. We've been talking with a lot of organizations here about that. Um, as people have some great ideas around how new technologies, including blockchains, can change their businesses, change the way they do stuff. But um, just flipping a switch one day and moving a billion dollars worth of securities into a blockchain may, may not be the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> uh, there's there's no returns on blockchain once you send that money out. No, it's a one-way, one-way street. So can you tell us a, a bit about how you, you might generalize um, T, TCR into other domains or maybe some of the learnings into other projects? Yeah. So um, one of the things I thought was most interesting is there's an attack vector with TCRs that's called coin flipping. So when you're voting, not when you're issuing a challenge or a nomination, but when you're actually voting, there's nothing at stake. So there's nothing to prevent you from loading all your tokens into your vote weight and then spamming votes. And actually the person who's richest on our list, it's not you. There's someone else that's richer than you, and they discovered the coin flipping really early. So they never initiated challenges or nominations, which if they lost would cost them 500 party points. Instead, they front loaded everything into their vote weight and just immediately from day one started spamming votes. And because of that, as they gained more winning votes and got more tokens from winning, they just kept steamrolling that. And now they are they have the, uh, the largest amount of party points. The other thing is we discovered 
The faucet, for those that don't know, you can hit a daily faucet to get 100 party points once every 24 hours. But what we noticed is nominations and challenges cost 500 points. So they're somewhat expensive, which meant engagement started to decay over time because if you only get 100 tokens a day, it takes you almost a full work week to get the ability to nominate or challenge again. And you, do you want to put those tokens you just worked so hard up, up for risk? So what we're planning to do in a version 1.1 release is we're going to actually increase the amount that you get from the faucet. So that way, challenges and nominations become less risky. Um, one of the other things that we discovered is cartels are a natural outcome. We hypothesize that cartels are going to form. And Spencer Noon actually had a good one when he was put up for a challenge. He had a hashtag save Spencer Noon. And we actually saw micro cartels form. We saw one form to kick you off the list, Colin. Um, one for Steven as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's an anti-Steven, yeah, cartel as well. <laughs> um, so another feature we're planning to build in is since they're already forming on their own, we're going to actually make that a built-in feature in the future so that you can actually form and delegate around cartels. That may or may not ruin the list, but it's something we want to test out. Um, the last thing we want to f- like we want to test longer term is I was actually talking to Steve about this right before our call. This gives us an opportunity to play around with the concept of like micro governance or micro democracies, because historically human capital has been very slow to adopt new governing styles. We had monarchies, then we tried communism, we've got democracies, we tried republics, but usually those in power don't want to give it up. But with blockchain and these micro democracies, I could see a way of us being able to test either corporate governance or political governance in a rapid iteration ecosystem where you might be able to test these hypotheses thousands of times in a year instead of waiting 10 years, 100 years or longer to see the outcomes of those results. Hmm. I, I think that's a really interesting idea. And especially, I mean, you could even apply a lot of that into, into the blockchain governance systems themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we've talked about expanding this into Reddit. So sub, you know, subreddits, they're literally curated lists. And the, moder- the only difference is moderators are effectively demigods answering only to the admins of Reddit. But what if you introduced a mechanism to allow voting of moderators on and off that list? The content's still voted and upvoted and downvoted as per usual. But that's an idea we've thought of Um a TCR delegating who has right access to a Telegram group, for example. So that way you can prevent, you know, all the spam and the bots, but you still allow public discourse for those that can pass that small barrier to entry. Those are just some of the ideas of like expanding it in other use cases we've thought of. I, I really like that. And I like, I like the, the forward thinking notion. One of, one of the, the other ideas that I've heard coming from different organizations is, is how you could actually use a TCR to judge the validity of other tokens. Um, I, I believe it's um, Ryan Selkis's group, uh, Masari, is, is kind of the leading thought. Um, so two questions on that. First, um, do you guys have any opinions on um, what that might look like, given some of the economic uh, knowledge that you've gained from this experience? And also uh, a more kind of meta question is, um, we know about things like EIPs and ERC-20s that standardize a token. Is there a standardization? Should there be a standardization for TCRs or those types of things? Um, on the second question, there actually is, um, I forgot who, but there, there is a standard forming around TCRs that's trying to set like a, a standard framework for, for the methods that they should have and 
and how they should work. Um, that that's being discussed right now. So I, I believe there is an EIP out there. Um, I would have to find it. Um, but but that is being worked on, if I'm not mistaken. And related to the first question, um, so right now people engage with TCR Party explicitly because it's fun. They control each other. We actually did some some user interviews with some of our active members and found out that the party bot that's curating the meaningful content is actually less interesting than the VIP bot because people care more about the drama. It probably explains why reality TV is so popular as well. It's like crystallized, you know, distilled human drama in an essence. Um, so one of the things that we we are hypothesizing is that right now people are playing because it's a game and it's fun. Once you introduce a mainnet launch, and if the token was tradable, for example, and suddenly has monetary value, it's going to introduce in our minds, we think, a new element of speculators. They may not be there for the fun and activity of the network. They're there because they want to make money and arbitrage on that opportunity. And that's not wrong, but we are concerned that it's going to change how the list is curated because our, our longstanding hypothesis is TCRs are going to be really good for if the three of us wanted to make a summer playlist. If one of you trolled me by putting Mariah Carey's Christmas song on there, it's not really a big deal because the list is pretty low stakes. But for like a top hundred colleges in the United States, Stanford and Harvard have arguably millions or billions of dollars at stake. They're going to be economically incentivized to guarantee that they're on the list or potentially madman attack their competitors and make sure they're off the list by colluding with the voters. And we want to test out TCR Party eventually on mainnet to see what happens once there's value. That is my biggest concern with projects like Masari or Foam is I think it's still valuable and can curate some meaningful lists, but you introduce people that may not care about the actual meaningful curation and they care more about the economic side. And maybe there's no way around it, but that's something we want to definitely get into to to see how it reacts. And I think those are those are really interesting notions that I, I would love to continue to have that discussion and figure out some of the, the ways that you can build around that. But I mean, for now, I think we're gonna have to leave it there. Can you guys tell us a bit about uh, how people can get a hold of you, uh, find out more about Alpine and and party with TCR party? Yeah, so I mean, if you want to interact with this, um, if it sounds interesting, then you can find, uh, you can go to www.tcr.party. And that will have all the instructions about how to get involved with or how to like sign up for the bot and start curating the registry. Um, and uh, you can also visit our website. We're alpineintel.com um, to learn more about us. Uh, we also have, going back to TCR Party, we have all of the information um, about TCR, like our specific implementation, how we did this, um, and, and all the different things that you can do with the bot listed on our website. So if you want more information about how exactly it works, uh, you can go there and also find us on Twitter or uh, LinkedIn or email. Um, contact us with your questions. Um, we're we're always excited to talk about this stuff with people. So uh, so I love answering the random questions that come in over Twitter DMs or whatever. Our our website alpineintel.com has all of our our access channels, email, Twitter handles, etc. To get a hold of us. Great. Well, thank you very much, guys, and uh, look forward to continuing this and, and continue to see where it goes. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Alrighty. Thanks very much to Colin, Steve, and Jacob. Uh, Colin, you enjoyed that interview? I enjoyed that interview, and I really like TCR Party. It's a lot of fun and easy to use, by the way. 
Alrighty, listeners, just to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS. We're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services and truly digital financial services. Uh, all right, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, uh, hit the subscribe button and please leave us a review. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Colin? Uh, on the Twitter, at uh, Colin G. Platt. And yourself, Anthony? For anything related to R3 or Corda, you can email me at anthony.lewis at r3.com. There's no H in Anthony. On Twitter, I'm at Anthony underscore BTC. Uh, my blog is bitsonblocks.net. Or you can read my book, The Basics of Bitcoins and Blockchains, which you can find on Amazon. You do all the things. Uh, all that remains for me to do is to thank our amazing production team at 11FS, producer Petrit, and of course, Alex, our editor. Thank you for getting through that one with me, despite having at some point no internet, using my phone's 4G, and God knows what else. So well done, everybody. Uh, thank you for listening. Of course, we'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.